0: hi my name is Ruby and I'm dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife's assistant and you're listening to the dr. Finlayson Fife podcast archive the podcast you'll be listening to today is called sexuality and healthy marriage relationships originally produced and published by Greg Reynolds of the marriage mastery podcast welcome and we hope you enjoy this episode um, so you're Jennifer Finlayson Fife mm-hmm. Um i've I've known of you for a long time. I first heard about you on i don't know it was probably on a podcast somewhere
1: mm-hmm. and then
0: my wife and I took a few of your classes. We took the relationship course, the sexuality course, and then my wife did the art of desire course mm-hmm. and we really enjoyed it um at the time in our relationship um it was really really helpful and we almost we almost even felt to some extent like we were Sort of led to find that because yeah. it's what we needed just right at the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, anyway, so I, we really enjoyed your courses. And um, now, whenever I see that you've been on other podcasts, they run into I always like to listen because I always feel like you have so much good insight and, and obviously, um, experience because you are a therapist. Mm-hmm. Or,
1: uh, yes. That's right. I'm a licensed therapist in, in Illinois. Okay. And, uh, and then I also do quite a bit of coaching online with couples, you know, particularly that have been taking my courses and need more specific input from me on their situation. And then I also do quite a bit of teaching. I, I did teaching at a college level for a few years, but I also um, do mostly now do online courses and lots of live workshops and things primarily for LDS couples. But uh-huh. But yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. So in your practice in Illinois, do you work mostly with LDS couples or is it a wide? It's
1: well, you know, when I first started, it was kind of half and half. And then when I did the online courses, I just I don't you know, I almost don't see people in person anymore. I mean, Mm -hmm. I mean, I do maybe 5% of my clients are local, Mm -hmm. uh, but mostly LDS and, um, and then mostly doing kind of coaching and teaching is what I've been doing a lot more of. So, uh, but it's, it's excellent work. I really love it. It's very satisfying to help people get stronger and clearer and happier. So it's really great.
0: Absolutely. Now, I would say about half, I mentioned this to you already, but about half of my audience is LDS and the other half is not. Yes. Um, but what I found is that a lot of the stuff that you talk about, even though, you know, you, you sometimes use terminology that is maybe a little more LDS specific, specific. Uh-huh. but the principles that you teach are not
2: yeah, that's
0: are not um, right. unique to religious people. That's necessarily. right. They apply to everybody. So.
1: Right. Lots of non-LDS people do take my courses because it's, there are, you know, concepts of Christianity and what it means to be Christian and what it means in a context of a marriage or parenting. Um, But yeah, they are broader human principles that have a lot of foundational elements in faith and specifically Christianity. So, I'm certainly drawing on those. But yes, it's really trying to help people have true principles to really understand what they're doing in their lives that's interfering with their happiness and their ability for capacity for intimacy both emotional and sexual yeah. and helping people be able to see better what the impediments are so they're more able to address them yeah yeah, yeah. i mean a lot of times that's really what keeps people stuck is they can't see what they don't know or they can't see what they're blind to quite literally in themselves. And so they keep trying often, but are kind of spinning in the uh, without any real traction because they can't see what they're missing. And so I really try to help people be more awake, which sometimes hurts. It's hard to see ourselves, but then it liberates us.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Now you do general um, relationship coaching and counseling, but you also specialize in sexuality. That's right. Right? Yes. And I think that's, um, sorry, I'm just adjusting my screen here. Okay. Um, So, I think if it's okay, that's a little bit more of what I would like to focus on today, the questions that I have for you. Um, I think, well... It's all. I think when it comes to relationships, it's all kind of intertwined, and and one thing affects other other things. But yes, um, sexuality issues are such a common problem, and particularly in LDS cultures, there aren't too many people tackling yes those those challenges. There there are yes. more now, um, but but it seems like when uh, Christians or or um, LDS people specifically are looking to find answers to sexuality problems. They're scared to know where exactly. to go because you don't want to run into the wrong source. Right. Um, or you get so many differing opinions um, outside of Christianity or um, right. the LDS faith specifically. And so.
1: And there's um, a lot of fear around it. Right. Because I think in general, among Christian faith. There's often an anxiety that sexuality is antithetical to godliness or to being Christ-like, and so there's this sort of you want to resolve something or figure it out so it can be a good part of your marriage, but and kind of ambivalence or anxiety that maybe the wrong sources will pull you into destructive paths, and certainly that can be true. And I think by what you're saying that often there aren't good resources, or there's a general kind of silence um, about it, which is really unhelpful for people. Right. Mm-hmm. right.
0: Well, I wrote up <clears throat> I wrote up some questions, so I'm just going to read these straight from my sure from my list here. Um, so, so the first question we've already kind of talked about this a little bit, but um, can you tell us a little bit? maybe a little more about yourself and why you became a therapist focusing on relationships and sexuality.
1: Sure. Well, honestly, I was kind of one of those kids that at a very young age was, I don't know how far back you want me to go. (laughs) I was always thinking about relationships and why people do the things they do. And very specifically why so many people seemed unhappily married. And I was just like a little social scientist uh, (laughs) when I was a little kid. And I cared about it a lot. And I was, you know, growing up in a traditional culture, I did not anticipate going to college beyond getting married. I didn't really, but I really did have this desire to help people. But I was a little bit afraid that like, you know, somehow I shouldn't pursue that level of education given my family culture and sort of broader church culture. But uh, I really just felt drawn to it. And I ultimately decided to follow that in my heart. And as I was doing a lot of my, I was really interested in women's issues. I was interested in understanding, um, you know, women and depression and why that seems so prevalent. And um, so I was just kind of looking into what it, what were these sort of gender ideologies? What did they mean? And then um, when I was in my PhD program, I was asked to teach a human sexuality course to the undergraduates at Boston college, which is a Jesuit school. And, um, and so I uh, started teaching those courses and the men and women that were writing the essays and so on. It just helped me see how much ambivalence there was within Catholic culture, for example, about sexuality, more so among the women than the men. And I was looking for a dissertation topic. And so it made me think, maybe I should look at LDS women's experiences. Is there a double standard? Do, All the feminist reading I had done as an undergrad and in grad school do uh, Latter-day Saint women have some of the hypothesized ambivalence and non-agency, meaning this sense of disconnection from their sexuality that many feminist writers would say happens in patriarchy. So that was ultimately what shaped my dissertation research and then I So I wrote my dissertation on Mormon women and sexual agency and looked at whether or not this, a particular feminist critique was an apt critique and ultimately how it was and how it was not. So that was my research, which was very interesting. And then I was home with my kids for a number of years, but then when I started to open a practice, I was interviewed and uh, started, you know, interviewed on my dissertation research and it, kind of went viral in a sense. And, you know, I then start, people were inviting me to come and present and do things. And so it just kind of blossomed from there that here. And I should say this other piece, I always did want to work with marriage relationships. So that was kind of the underlying theme of my um, PhD work. I was always looking for those kinds of internships and so on. But um, anyway, so it just led me right into what I really love, which is helping couples be happier and, um, and, and, and be at peace with their sexuality and have sexuality be able to be an important part of being in a marital friendship, meaning to have it, people be more at peace with themselves and more able to express themselves and love through their sexuality. And so that's a lot of uh, what my goals and work have been about. So yeah.
0: Great. So I'm just curious, um, with your research, did you find that uh, LBS women had a lot of the same ambivalence? That
1: Definitely. So, yes, I mean, I could spend a couple of hours just on that question mm-hmm. alone, but <laughs> yes, I mean, a lot of the hypothesized, you know, the the research, uh, sorry, the, the theory I was looking at was the impact of patriarchy or more specifically gender role ideology mm-hmm. on women's uh, Anxieties and and disconnection from their own sexuality, and there was lots of different ways in which that gets expressed. And so the majority of the women that I interviewed, I did I did four to six hour long interviews spread out over you know a few sessions, but of of looking at premarital experience, postmarital experience, and um, and yes, the majority of the women I interviewed had all those anxieties the sense that their sexuality shouldn't belong to them eroticism is not feminine that they shouldn't be the ones that initiate or something's wrong uh that they need to have enough desire to keep the man happy but not so much that it feels like a threat those kinds of things were very much alive in the themes of the interviews uh that if they did too much premaritally that it would discredit them and make them less desirable much more so than it would for a man Like it was much more forgivable in a man uh that it wasn't okay to say no or you would then threaten your value to the man so all these kinds of things so you know sexuality was really seen as some as a mechanism for being acceptable in marriage much more than a kind of core and fundamental part of oneself and so that was the case for the majority of the women i interviewed Uh, On the other hand, there was a minority of women who had really embraced and accepted a conservative sexual ethic, right, that's consistent with Mormonism, but also for many Christian faiths, of course. And so they'd really embrace that conservative view, but without the sexism. So they would say things like, look, God expects men and women to be chaste before marriage. God expects, you know, and this isn't about keeping myself acceptable to a man. This is about my relationship to the divine and the kind of person I want to be. And, and it's in line with my own aspirations that I want to be in a, an exclusive marriage, meaning I want to sh- uh, save my sexual self and my expression of my sexuality with someone I'm committed to. And my faith supports that the men do the same. So they actually saw the theology as supporting what they ultimately wanted. And very importantly, they had stripped it of any sexism. And they had also, they functioned very much, whether or not they even saw themselves this way, they very much functioned as equals in their marriage. So they were collaborators in decision-making and in, often in providing economically for the family. And so they had a strong sense of self and that was expressed through their sexuality as well. And so they didn't necessarily think of themselves as rebellious or rejecting of the kind of cultural expectations. They just were very comfortable in who they were and were comfortable in their sexuality as well. And so it was just interesting to see how had these women, how had some really been sort of shaped by some of these cultural messages and why had others rejected them and maybe held on to the best in those cultural and religious messages. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that was the work I did. And I use a lot of those things that I learned in my Art of Desire course in helping women to um, basically embrace their sexuality uh, for their own benefit and for their own strength, really, about being enough for a man. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Mm -hmm.
1: Um,
0: So one of the one of the com the next question, mm-hmm. uh, one of the common problems that I run into with my clients, as well as in my own marriage, is mm-hmm. the challenge of creating a romantic and sexual relationship that meets the needs and desires of both partners. Mm-hmm. In your experience, what does a healthy romantic and sexual relationship look like? And what are the mm-hmm. key attitudes of husbands and wives that help create this relationship?
1: Okay, good. That's a big question. So you but, might have to come back yeah, to some of it so I don't forget it, but... Um, can you just come back to the beginning of that question? Cause I had about 17 ideas. That came in my head <laughs> <Sure>. there. <laughs> okay.
0: So, um, common problem is, um, creating a romantic and sexual relationship yeah. that is satisfying, meets the needs and desires of both
1: partners. Got it. Yes. Okay. Okay. Let's start with that. So, yeah. So I would say that, first of all, let's just be clear, clear that this is a big challenge from a developmental perspective to create a thriving, romantic, sexually, and emotionally intimate partnership is not easy. That's why so many people don't have it. Mm -hmm. Okay, And it's not easy because developmentally, it requires a lot of us. Most particularly, and what I think most people struggle with, is the ability to tolerate being knowable and Mm -hmm. knowing their partner. A lot of us want the validation of somebody who's going to caretake us or make us feel strong. And validate our desirability and our goodness. I think a lot of us get married hoping for that. And then when that gets punctured and shredded by the realities of marriage, uh, those of us that tolerate that process and allow the honesty, the potential honesty of dealing with differences, of dealing with who you really are, dealing with who your spouse really is, and growing up and still creating a meaningful, honest partnership, that takes a tremendous amount of courage that a lot of us do not have. Mm -hmm. And I think we often don't even know that we're doing it. We participate in making our marriages be dead and seemingly safe. And so, you know, I'm often struck by how much couples collude in a dishonest, you know, a kind of love is to pretend that I feel something I don't feel or I believe something I don't believe or I, you know, want something I don't want and or pressure you to pretend so that I'm comfortable, you know, and couples often do this as a way of creating a stability, but the resentments or the lack of growth or the um, lack of honesty will kill passion very, very quickly. So, so there's that issue. And then there's the issue of sexual Integration, I mean, I'm going to say, have got so many concepts to say, but basically, being at peace with your sexuality and being able to speak in the language of sexuality is its own challenge. Now, a lot of people think that's got to be the problem. My wife is so repressed. I'm fine. Okay. <laughs> and that's just get Dr. Finlay's wife to solve her, and then we'll be good. <laughs> okay. So I get a lot of that. Okay. And, you know, often there is an issue there. Oftentimes, the A woman that's grown up in a Christian tradition is often going to be much more anxious about her sexuality because it's antithetical to her goodness and her desirability, and she's been taught to be rejecting of it on some level. Mm -hmm. So that is often an issue, but I also find that it's an issue with men much more than men actually recognize and i can say more about that later so there is this issue of how at peace you are with your sexuality and whether or not you're really willing to integrate this part of being human and create goodness with it and through it but then the often the foundation upon which that's a reality is what is the state of the marriage how honest is it how real is it how safe is it um and what are the dynamics that are at play and You know, so often that's where I'm, you know, sometimes I'm working on the sexuality right up front, but oftentimes I'm starting with what's actually happening in this couple and are they even sitting on a foundation in which sexuality could thrive? Right. Mm Mm-hmm. So then I think there was another part of your question that I – yeah. Oh, so, what are some of the attitudes or...
0: Yeah, the, yes. the key attitudes of husbands and wives that can create a healthy relationship.
1: Yeah. Okay, or, good.
0: And, and what does a healthy sexual relationship look like?
1: Well, so good. So, I think, first of all, I think that when an important attitude is that people understand that a marriage, at least in modern Western culture, is a sexual relationship. So that is to say when people, and it's based on the concept of choosing. And so those both have to be clear in the, in the couples that thrive. The couples that thrive, I should say, those are clear concepts. So what I mean by that is that people hold true to and are honest about two foundational elements. The first is that this is a partnership of choosing. That's the basis of romance romanticism, and I am a romantic. I mean, I don't even know, maybe that's my fallibility, but I really do value this idea that you know all other familial relationships are sort of biological, and you love them because they're yours, okay but 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 partnership is chosen you're the you know i'm the how to say you're the person that i choose with all your dysfunction and all my dysfunction i choose you yeah (laughs) you're my first choice and um i choose to bring my best to you and it's not that i couldn't be attracted to other people or couldn't choose other people but you're the one i choose and that's a very that's a meaning that we all i think like that's that out of a crowd this special person was drawn to me that's the basis of romanticism and sexual excitement i think that this person finds me desirable that precisely what would be disgusting to many other people to do with me to her or him they find it exciting that i am being welcomed that i'm being received accepted and that's really you know, we all want that, I think. It's a very, going back to our roots even as babies where we were, at least those of us that were born into parents that loved us and embraced us and accepted us, was this sense of, as a baby, you had to do nothing to be fully accepted in all your sensuality. Kiss, squeezed, every roll of fat was adored. You just had to bang your spoon and, and parents would swoon, okay? <laughs> and so, and we... As we get older, we lose a lot of that. More is expected of us. There's the social norms, the expectations of what we're supposed to do. But I think we're looking still for this sense of full acceptance, to be loved all the way through. That's that's at the core of romanticism. And you found this special one who is is just – Intensely interested in you and you with them. And so we want that in marriage. Now we don't necessarily want to offer it. We want to receive it right. <laughs> more than we want to offer it. Um, a lot of us are like, well, I would be attracted if you weren't doing these other four <laughs> stupid things. Okay, but <laughs> but you owe me attraction even when I'm doing stupid things. And um and so we we want it more than we want to give it, but that's really at the core of a thriving relationship is, I choose you. And I think in marriage, you choose, uh, first of all, I'm not here to say that you always must choose the person you chose. Sometimes it becomes poor judgment to continue to choose someone or you need to unchoose for some reason. But I think in a marriage where you're saying, I really do choose you, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, a lot of us try to be in it without doing that work of choosing. But what I think that is say, I want to be married. I, I don't want to divorce, but I don't want to be married. Right. A lot of us do that and are blind to the fact that we're doing that to our spouse. I want you to want me sexually. I don't want to invest and want you. So a lot of people do that. But if you're really going to choose, what it means is not that you just put up with anything, but that you say, I'm bringing my best to this partnership. I'm willing to confront things in myself. I'm willing to confront things that are between us that are interfering with both of us thriving. I'm willing to talk honestly to you about things that are interfering, not with the point of being superior to you or making you feel bad, but with the end of really creating something more sustainable. That's what it is to choose somebody. You're invested in creating something good for both of you. And when people know this person is invested, even though they... Bring up hard things, or they don't, you know, always, you know, buy into everything I'm trying to sell as a as a legitimate idea. Uh, that that really creates the basis of thoughtful romanticism. You know, when we first fall in love, it's not so thoughtful. It's just like biologically driven, <laughs> dopamine flooding the brain. You know, you're just like, oh, this person's amazing. When it's mature love, it's it's knowing love. It's love based in knowledge, and you understand and you see. Uh, but that's the best kind. As you know, this person knows me, all my flaws, my limitations, and they still are mad about me. They still choose me. That is deeply, deeply gratifying. Those are the happiest people, actually. Yeah. And, but it takes some courage to create that because you have to be willing to deal with yourself. People that won't self-confront will never be happily partnered. It's just the deal. And so that's one of the attitudes. You have to be willing to look at yourself so anyway I feel like there's (laughs) I like saying so much I feel like I've kind of lost the question but I think another important attitude I should just say is that you know that my sexuality it matters you can't really create a thriving partnership if you don't want to deal with your sexuality and a lot of people don't want to deal with it right and who what they're creating with it and a lot of us are creating destructive patterns whether it's through our indulgence sexually or our repression sexually they're both problematic in marriage And we tend to want to think repression somehow more virtuous than indulgence. But I think if you're in a marriage and you're not dealing with what you do with your sexuality, it's destructive. So I think that's an important attitude that I'm actually creating goodness in this partnership through my sexuality. Not through just accommodating the other person, right, but by creating something that we both enjoy, that we find a way for us to both thrive. That's what it requires. Mm-hmm. And when, when you're both willing to collaborate, you can work across differences without a lot of pain and difficulty when you really are willing to look at yourselves and create something mutual. But a lot of times we're partnered with people that don't want to do that or we ourselves don't want to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Great. This is going to be one of those podcasts where I'm going to have to go back and listen about 10 times to, right. <laughs> to get all of the good stuff that was, that's in there. Yeah. Um, so you teach you teach both a couple sexuality course and the women's art of desire course. And mm-hmm. The stigma is that men are usually the higher desire partner in a sexual mm-hmm. relationship. And while that may be true in many cases, it's definitely not universally true.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So in your couple's, sexuality course, you say, and I'm kind of paraphrasing mm-hmm. this, that women may have a greater capacity than, even, than men for sexual pleasure.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yes. So if this is true, um, in your experience, what are the challenges that are facing many women from experiencing that mm-hmm. greater sexual enjoyment and desire?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And, okay. what, and then what can, well, maybe that first, and then yeah. what can husbands do to support their wives um, to allow them to enjoy that part of their sexuality,:
1: Okay, so I think what I would say is, first of all, i 'll go on a limb and just say, generally speaking, women just simply do have more sexual capacity, and, and uh, but women are pickier um, about where they bring their sexuality. So from just a psychobiological perspective, Women have a lot more to lose in a sense. It's a lot more vulnerable to be sexual, to open up your body to another person. You can get pregnant, get a disease. you know, and so women um, it I think the right way to say it are kind of erotic, emotive, sensual creatures. I mean, if I'm going to just stereotype us for a moment, you know the way women are put together generally speaking, are more sensitive to feeling that there's, there's, sort of lots of stereotypes around this sort of earthy emotive creature that is female. Okay. And that's a lovely part of being female. So women in the research shows this are much more, Will their bodies will actually become aroused by a, a much broader uh, range of stimuli than men, right? Men will be like, this is what I like. And then when they see that thing, they, you know, their body responds, but sort of what they don't like, their body doesn't respond. Women our bodies are responding to all kinds of things, even things that they would not like at all, okay? And the researchers was like, is that just because women are so repressed because their bodies are becoming aroused, but they aren't saying they want something? And I think that speaks right to this. Okay, I may be in response to a lot of the stimuli around me, um, but that's very different than I choose to be sexual.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So when things are... Go- and again, I'm speaking in stereotypes, and this is not always the case because it can be the opposite for men and women. But uh, I think for many women, they may like sex and they put, putting aside the kind of cultural repressions or where people haven't developed their sexuality. There are many women who like sex that they're that they want to have good sex, but they don't want the sex that they're having in their marriage they don't want what's happening there. And so they sort of shut it down and they lose interest. They become a lower desire person, but somewhat artificially, it looks like it's about a lack of capacity when really it's a lack of interest in the sex that's available to them. And I can speak more of that in a second, but often it doesn't get addressed very honestly or dealt with very honestly because of some of the ambivalences women have about their own sexuality. And some of the ambivalences men have, because I think men are socialized into the idea that women's sexuality exists for them on some level and exists to reinforce them and i think a lot of men and women co-construct a dynamic of the woman kind of sliding underneath the men psychologically and sexually and she looks super low desire because she is because that's not very fun sexuality and it reinforces the man's ego and feeling like he's got it all worked out and she doesn't and he's comfortable with sex and she isn't but it masks his own ambivalence about really letting i mean how does it well the man and the woman may both be ambivalent about really letting the depth and capacity actually come forward and and so so women are pickier but the thing is women are and women are slower to become aroused so if you keep the focus on how men like to have sex which let me me just be a little bit more fair. I should say how men are able to have sex, men can become aroused quite quickly, you know, and reach climax relatively quickly. And so if you're doing it on what men can do, women will look defective. Mm -hmm. Okay. And especially if men are anxious because the things are not going well sexually between themselves and their partner, they're going to be more prone to premature orgasm. And so if they're having premature orgasm, then it's happening even quicker than they want it to. And it may look like they're at least sexually successful because they were able to reach climax. But the woman looks by comparison, you know, dead on arrival, like not sexually able. So women are slower to become aroused. And if it's on a, on a, the, what men are capable of, women looked defective by comparison, but if you um, are able to do it more on women's timetable, okay, and women become aroused, right, then when women are really aroused, and again, they can be picky, so they can be harder to get aroused, and I can talk mm-hmm. about more of that if you want, but, you know, once women are aroused, they can stay aroused, and they can have multiple orgasms, most women. Right. Or the, even if they're not multiply orgasmic, if you're very aroused, women can have very intense and deep orgasms that sort of expand through their whole body and their whole soul, right? And so, you know, women's, men are more phallic focused and women are more body focused. And that is to say, while the vulva and the clitoris are an important part of their arousal, the whole body and their minds are a very important part of arousal. And so I think women's sexual pleasure is more diffused through the body right, as well. So, I think women, when they do open up and do choose and are aroused, can be very, that a man can see how deep and profound and extensive her capacity for pleasure is, but only if you're willing, if you're a man who's not threatened by that and is willing to invest in what it would require in a partnership and in a marriage and the woman's willing to invest and let herself be strong and let herself be expressive and let herself be knowable to really know and see that difference. So it hides in plain sight often.
0: Mm-hmm. I've, I've, read, I've read many studies where um, kind of men's greatest satisfaction sexually is in providing yes. in, in pleasure, pleasure for their spouse. Absolutely. Yes. More so than receiving the pleasure themselves.
1: Yes. And this is a wonderful part of male sexuality. <laughs> I mean, really, it's profoundly generous and wonderful. And um and yet I think that it can go two directions. Uh let me see if I can name all this. I think on the one hand some women will say, But it's all about him. He's saying, Was it good for you? But what he's really asking is, Am I good enough? Right? So that so much of his sense of self is getting measured through her pleasure that she feels very pressured to manage his ego Mm
2: -hmm.
1: through her pleasure. And this is why people will fake orgasms and all these kinds of things. And so it doesn't feel generous. Now, I'm not saying that this is all the man's fault because that's a kind of collusion in making it all about the man, okay? Um, And the woman's participating in it. She may feel like it's very hard for me to orgasm because I'm trying to manage him feeling successful. And so I feel all this pressure. So I'm actually not having that much pleasure precisely because he wants it so much, right? Um, Then there's also people who actually can track and know that they are partnered with somebody, with a man who is sexually generous, who really does want good for them, who wants to give to them. Not just because it reinforces him, even though it may feel good to him and to to be able to offer that, but because they really do want their spouse to be happy and satisfied and they feel good about offering that. But that the woman may feel afraid of that, afraid of the exposure in it, afraid to receive it, afraid to acknowledge it's true because it's often easier to be in a victim position and to Mm -hmm. say, you know, this is all about you. When maybe in my honesty of my heart, I know it's that's not fair, but I'd rather keep it in that frame so I don't have to deal with my own anxiety about receiving and my own anxiety about my own sexual capacity and pleasure. And, you know, I think a lot of, how to say it, good intimate sexuality requires the ability to sustain our sense of self. And to tolerate not having validation at every moment. This is fundamental to honest marriages. But even in sexuality, for a woman and man, for that matter, to be able to orgasm is to be able to trust that you can sort of step away from the connection in a sense. I mean, I don't mean that you don't know your partner's there giving to you, but to be able to move into your own experience and express yourself and to trust that they will be okay, that you will be okay, that they can see you in this way, that you can, in a sense, be vulnerable in that way, if that's the right way to say it, that exposed and still be okay. And I think for a lot of people, that's so terrifying for whatever their histories are or where they are in their development, that they just would rather say, let's just make it about you. And there's kind of a reinforcement of, I don't really want to show up here. I don't really want to take that risk. And, and so a lot of times couples keep it that way, even though it's to their mutual detriment.
0: Uh-huh. So when it comes to a couple, husband and wife, let me see how I want to ask this. So would you suggest to a husband and wife that they both are, kind of opening themselves up to enjoy that, that pleasure and, and stuff like that? Or is it one of those things where the, the husband focuses on giving that pleasure and the wife focuses on receiving that pleasure?
1: Yeah, in my classes, uh, my, the online courses, I do give couples exercises where they quite literally, without the f- um, goal being orgasm, that there is a deliberate shift of focus where the woman focuses on receiving and the husband on giving just pleasure and sensuality and really literally quite honestly expanding your ability to receive and mm-hmm. to self-accept. And for many women, this is a very important exercise. It kind of goes right against what culturally they've been taught to do. Mm-hmm. And it oftentimes allows a different kind of giving and receiving to happen in the marriage. Um, So I think this is a really important piece. And I think um, for a lot of women, it it means shifting how they conceptualize themselves. You know, I, I know for myself, when I first got married, I really understood that I had married a person that was more capable of loving than the marriage I had seen in my parents, right? So that is to say, I knew this person really loved me and really chose me and I was afraid of it. And I would tend to want to dismiss it or kind of reduce it or somehow make it more selfish than it was because I knew how to do that, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I knew how to feel on top of that. Mm -hmm. And I knew, thankfully, that I was being dishonest and unfair. So, I push myself to like, I need to just settle down and receive what's here, even if I'm not sure that I'm worthy of it. And this is not really how I would think. I have never been, well, I should say, at least at that point in my life, I wasn't the kind of person that was like, oh, I'm so unworthy. I, I was more like, yeah, I'm worthy. You know, I'm more defensive, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and yet, the, thing, the truth of it was, I really did question, am I really worth, he loves me, but maybe he's just blind. Okay, maybe it's because he's too clueless or something. (laughs) And I was afraid I was not enough, really. And so I was afraid if I just stopped trying to control it and let him really see me and give to me that I would be found wanting. And I just thought, you know, it's still unfair. And even if I am, then I've got to deal with that. But I need to stop doing this. And I just remember like really pushing myself to just receive it and accept what I could feel was real and it was quite literally like shifting my sense of myself and it was uncomfortable it's strange you know you think well what's wrong with just feeling better about yourself or accepting the goodness that's out there but I think we're quite afraid of it often and we're afraid of the exposure and what I think we say often in the culture is the vulnerability of it you know the the perceived vulnerability and so but I think as I let myself do that. It did expand my sense of myself and who we were as a couple and that I really was chosen. And I think that then really allowed me to trust more, to be more open, to be more expressive, more honest, you know, and so, but that's a, that's a step that takes some courage. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And you can't make
1: your partner do it either, you know. Right. (laughs) You can, you can be clear about what you're giving but you can't necessarily make somebody uh, acknowledge it with you. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm.
0: I've noticed that in my own relationship, my wife and I, we both agree that we want an amazing marriage and we we can kind of paint the picture of what we want, but when it comes to actually taking the steps to getting there, Mm -hmm. that requires growing up, it requires going into uncharted territory for us of mm. of maturity and stuff. And it's like, yes. well, I know what, like, I'm comfortable in my area of immaturity. And uh, <laughs> yes. I know what that includes, all the good and the bad. Yep. And I could probably make it through my life right here. Yep. I know something could is better, but it's also scary because I don't Absolutely. know what else is.
1: It's always scary. and And that's my favorite understanding of faith is, that you you can feel there's a higher way there's something there's truth out there there's a view that's above where you currently are functioning and you can feel it but it takes courage i mean faith is really highly linked to courage to reach for something that you feel but don't fully know yet and that's the the virtue in it is the courage right and so Yes, absolutely. When I, I think the thing when I was saying earlier that I like so much about the work I do is it's very inspiring to watch people do that, that they are terrified. You know, you're pointing out something to them that they do not want to be true about themselves or they don't want to face. And they, they, they've got this, like they've got their, I don't know how to explain it, but they're like holding on to the edge of the cliff, you know, <laughs> with a fierceness, right? And the more that it's getting challenged by their spouse or by the therapist, like the, sometimes the more they're just hanging on for dear life, kicking and screaming, because they're terrified of letting go of the ego or the self-concept that has been part of their sense of self, and yet it's their prison. And so when I watch people have the courage to just like peel their f- <laughs> knuckles off the edge and allow themselves to let go of a way of thinking about themselves or reality… And let their mind scramble and their body scramble in a sense in a new reality that's more true. You know, you see them get reorganized at a higher level of functioning. You see them be more able to love and be loved. And it's really amazing to watch it, but it's that moment of courage, like that for me is always like where you see the best in humanity is that willingness to sacrifice your comfort and your soothing self-conceptions for something that you know is better and scarier and more uncertain but you know is ultimately hurting you and your partner if you keep hanging on and you know and the reward is a freer life a happier life but I'm often like it's so much better on the other side just like go (laughs) but people (laughs) often aren't convinced (laughs)
2: yeah
1: yeah yeah and people are good at you know keeping their own self deceptions alive, so right. sometimes they win in that <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: so we're running mm-hmm. we're running yes. short on time. I know you have a client soon, so yes. um i guess I guess the last question would be if you can in in the next few minutes, um, could you give for hmm, I hope. Th- I hope this makes sense, but could you give maybe one or two or three steps that couples could take Mm -hmm. who are struggling with sexuality? I I know, I know when I coach people, there are a few steps that pretty much everybody could do to improve Mm -hmm. their relationship. And are there, are there two or three steps maybe that like that, that pretty much anybody could do? Um,
1: Yeah. Okay. Take my courses. (laughs) (laughs) Call in with any questions. Um, But beyond that, let's see. I mean, I think, what's the thing your spouse always complains about, about you? What's the thing they're always pushing on? Okay and you know it makes them unhappy you know it undermines their well-being okay or at least they're saying it does
2: Uh
1: and what is it that is true in what they're saying now a lot of times people are complaining about things in part as a way to not deal with their limitations do you know Uh what i mean so they are in part keeping something immature alive in themselves through the complaint and I'm gonna assume for a moment that that's true with your spouse, whoever's listening to this, okay? But what is in fact true about what they're saying? What is it that you know you've got to deal with? You know is at least true about you, let's say they think it's true about you 90% of the time and you're gonna acknowledge it's true 10% of the time. even though they're closer to the truth they're than you right. are, go with the 10%, start there. <laughs> Where is it true? Where am I being, you know, self-serving? When is it true that I can be selfish at their expense? Or when is it true that I try to sell some idea of my own weakness to not have to take responsibility for my life or whatever you know it is? And that, so that should be at least step one. Then <laughs> Maybe that's step one and two, I don't know. But step one, and then, you know, deal with it. That is to say, what do I need to do to truly deal with this? Stop making it their problem. Because a lot of times we will do this irresponsible step of sort of making it our spouse's problem, that they don't like this thing about us, rather than what I'm doing is immature, hurtful, and undermines my partnership. And therefore if I want a good partnership, I need to deal with it. Stop making it their issue to have to bring up and hit me over the head with a million times a day. If I don't want my spouse to nag, deal with it. <laughs> so, you go deal with it. And then maybe step 3 is you you or you can do the two and three can be interchangeable, but you talk honestly to your spouse about what you know you've been doing that's been hurting them. That you're willing to say, "Look, I know I do this thing to you. I know uh, I act like I can pull, it o- pull one over on you and do this, and I'm sorry, and I am addressing it, okay? You will then go have better sex, I promise. <laughs> 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 I mean, th- this is just talking about the part of the foundation. I mean, we could talk about things you could do around your sexuality and what ambivalences you have, but that would be like, you know, fifty right. steps down. But anyway, so... Um, But like just starting with what do I know I need to deal with that I use my spouse to not deal with. And if you stop doing that, you're becoming a more trustworthy person and a more desirable person because the people we find desirable in marriage, it has less to do thankfully with body shape than it has to do with character and who this person really is in my life. And, um, so, you know, function in a way that you know is desirable that's the best antidote to a spouse who doesn't desire you Is you at least know you're functioning in a desirable way and in a respect worthy way
0: yeah great well thank you um so i've i've taken your classes or i've taken a couple of them my wife has done three of them and we love them they were very helpful i can definitely uh, speak to that thank you for listening if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Finlayson Fife's online relationship courses, visit her website today and look for the online courses tab where you can find both Strengthening Your Relationship and Enhancing Sexual Intimacy, her two online courses for couples and relationships. You can find Dr. Finlayson Fife's website at www.finlayson-fife.com. Thanks for listening.